Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. You got it, right? <laughs> Escape? Okay. Thanks, Elliot. He got out. It's all good. All right. Between May 26th and June 14th, 1940, was uh, Operation Dynamo. Anybody know what that was? Any military experts? All right. Operation Dynamo uh, was the evacuation and rescue of more than 300. I'm a li- I got a little feedback. It's going to drive me nuts. That's better. All right. Uh, was the rescuing and evacuation of over 338,000 British and French soldiers from certain annihilation at the hands of the Nazi Blitzkrieg. Uh, It started on May 15th, early in the morning. The French Premier Paul Renaud called and woke up British Prime Minister Winston Churchill with a phone call. And this is what he said, we've been defeated. Churchill couldn't believe it. He (laughs) He kind of expected them to be defeated, but not this fast. German troops had taken completely alternate routes uh, than those that the Allies had set up to defend. This is World War II. And their march through Holland, Belgium, and Luxembourg was at an incredible speed. And now British and French soldiers were completely outmanned. The German Panzer Division, the tank division, was set to pretty much end the war. This would have been the end of World War II and, a, and an easy air invasion of England would have sealed the deal to follow this up. So the initial plan was for an evacuation of soldiers out of Dunkirk, right? If you, Owen Nolan, Owen Nolan? Yeah, anyway, uh, made the movie just a few years ago, but the story behind it, it's actually pretty fascinating. The original plan was to evacuate soldiers out of Dunkirk, the very northern tip of France, just a few miles from the Belgian border, Churchill did not like that plan for a number of reasons. One, he thought maybe we could get 20,000 troops out at most, but that's going to be really hard because none of our ships are ready. And if we send ships from over from England, that leaves us totally exposed, and uh, it just is not going to go well. Um, <coughs> so we went to King George. And uh, he, he told King George about the situation. And King George called for a national day of prayer and fasting on May 26th, 1940. And I forgot, to, I forgot to get, there's no good quality pictures of this, but there's a black and white photo of Westminster Abbey and people lined all the way down the sidewalk waiting to get into Westminster Abbey on the 26th. Now, Winston Churchill was a very 
irreligious man. Uh, and so it was out of character for him to use the only word he could find to describe four various things that took place over the next week. He used the word miracle. And Winston Churchill did not use the word miracle. Four miracles that took place over the next several days. First, inexplicably, this is a move that confounded not only the military leaders of his day, uh, but also strategists even now have no idea why this happened. But Hitler called for his Panzer Division, which was just 10 miles outside of, of uh, Dunkirk, to halt, to stop the advance on that Sunday. Never understood why. But that gave allies time to form a perimeter, to protect, protect the port, to set up a funnel for troops to get in uh, as they were fleeing from various parts of the continent. Um, and he said they sat still for three days. Second, the weather over the French coast got extremely cloudy blanketing the sky with clouds. And then any German bombs that were falling, the smoke just seemed to go up and add to that. This massive evacuation then essentially went undetected for a few days. The German Luftwaffe could not see, the Air Force could not see what was happening. They certainly didn't know where to drop bombs or what to do. You have this massive compiling of soldiers just waiting there. And they couldn't see it. Third, a massive call went out by King George in England to anyone who had access to a boat to get in your boat and head across the channel. Many of these boats, many of these captains had never been out of the view of shore, and these boats certainly weren't seaworthy when it came to the English Channel. But hundreds responded without even really knowing what they were getting into. They were completely unarmed, most of them novice sailors. And they headed across the channel. And then finally, the English Channel itself. Normally, normally incredibly choppy, very rough waters, would destroy and throw these boats around like nobody's business. But very abnormally, very uncharacteristically, the seas were, to quote one man who took his small motorboat across, as still as bathwater. And these small boats got across the channel. They would pick up the soldiers off the shore, round the clock, hours upon hours upon hours. They would take them from the shore out to some of the bigger ships. And when all was said and done, thanks to the efforts of about 850 little ships, over 338,000 French and English soldiers would live to fight another day. Now, as a quick shout out to my wife. Most of the details of that story I got from a guide post online. If you were here last week, my wife reads guide posts. Today we're going to look at how Jesus addresses the practice of fasting. What is the practice of fasting? What does it do? What's it for? And there were some things that I 
uncovered or, or hit me in a different way. Um, I thought this would be an easy week to prepare because I've done this before. Some things that actually kind of hit me a different way uh, revealed in, in the study this week in regards to fasting. And so um, I'm sure you guys can't wait to hear more about fasting. So let's go ahead and jump into the text and see what, this, what we are told about fasting. So we're going to start with verse 16, and Jesus says, And when you fast, that's kind of presumptive, right? Jesus assumed that people were fasting. So what does it mean to fast? It's a, it's a, it's a great question. I've learned a lot from a lot of different sources what it means to fast. Uh, what are the benefits of fasting? There's actually remarkable benefits mentally and physically uh, and emotionally. Um, and then the practice of, of regular the regular discipline of fasting and all of that, and I'm going to get into some of that. However, and this is a big however, I was convicted, convicted this week about some of the historical practices of fasting and what does the Bible actually say about fasting, and more importantly, maybe what does the Bible not say about fasting. There is no command in the Bible to fast as a regular spiritual discipline. There's no command in Scripture to fast regularly as a regular practice. Um, is it good? Is it healthy? Should it be practiced? Is it beneficial? Absolutely. Uh, I would argue yes. I would argue yes. And maybe not for everybody. And I, that huge confession, I am terrible at this being at all consistent in my life. But it is never commanded, and even in my understanding, there's nothing in ancient Hebrew rabbinical teaching about the regular practice of fasting. Now, there was a regular practice of fasting. By the time we get to Jesus, pious Jews, now pious just means religious, doesn't mean like self-righteous, just religiously observant Jews would fast, uh, would fast twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays. When Jesus came, followers of Jesus, uh, probably Jewish, con no, I'm, I'm not even going to say converts, Jewish followers of Jesus uh, continued with the common practice for fasting, but did it on Wednesdays and Fridays so as to be distinguished uh, from uh, their, the pr uh, practices of uh, their Jewish neighbors. But the regular practice of fasting is not commanded. Um, one thing that is addressed is the motive for fasting. I've read a lot of books. I've listened to a lot of podcasts. Uh, and especially in our day, the regular practice of fasting has largely come to be identified with its benefits, right? Spiritual growth, uh, physical and emotional health, a kind of reset uh, a, a look, a, a, a view of our sin, a kind of reset there, um, even like a higher chance of answered prayer. Some might even say, some might even say that the truly holy uh, are those who fast. Um, and if you're going to be truly holy, then fasting is a must. But according to Scripture, these aren't the motives given for fasting. So, what does the Bible say about fasting? First thing we need to know is nearly every religious tradition, even the irreligious religious traditions, like in our current day, right? I'm not religious. I just do these set of things, these set of ways. I think everybody has a practice of 
uh, fasting. Um, so it's common. What makes the Bible uh, and its prescription of fasting a little different? In Scripture, fasting is always a response. When we see it, it's always given as a response. To refrain from food for a time in response to a sacred and often grievous moment in time. It's entering into the grief of God in response to sin, war, violence, death, our neediness, in some cases impending judgment of God, and injustice. Some examples. Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement. Israel instruct, is instructed to fast. We see this in Leviticus 19 and 23. To grieve over their sin and prepare their hearts for the confession of their sin, uh, the atonement that it will be made, the sacrifice that will be made on behalf of their sin, and the grief that that would cause, uh, and then the hopeful acceptance of their confession and sacrifice, bringing about the forgiveness of their sin. Psalm 35, David is praying for God to take judgment on his enemies. It's called an imprecatory prayer. And I'll, just to clarify, uh, David demonstrates how to take his anger toward his enemies to God, like an imprecatory psalm, and you're like, wow. There's one, Psalm 109, where he's praying about his, the, his enemies' orphan children going hungry in the street. <laughs> and you're like, that's a bit much. Like, it's elaborate. Who's thought about this? Um, but he brings that before God and allows God to be his great defender. Anyway, Psalm 35, David is talking about people who he has once loved who have betrayed him. So he's probably either talking about King Saul or his son Absalom. And, and, and more than likely, I think he's talking about uh, Absalom. But he is remembering at one point when his now enemies, when he loved them and they were sick and David wore sack, sackcloth and afflicted himself with fasting. He grieved for them to the point where he placed suffering on himself. And then they betrayed him. And when he stumbled, they laughed. And that's where he brings his prayer before God to, to bring judgment on his enemies. In Isaiah 58, the prophet of Isaiah calls out self-righteous fasting in verse 3. When the people say, why have we fasted and you see it not? We've humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it. God, in response, says, Behold, in the day of your fast, you still seek your own pleasure, and you oppress all your workers. You fast only to quarrel and fight and hit with a wicked fist. You're still hangry. People were fasting as a transactional relationship. See, God, see, we, we, here's how this works. We do this for you, and then you do this for us. That's how this works. Our God, this is not how our God works. He is not a transactional God. He gives good because he is good, not because we work for it. And listen, listen, we all want a transactional God when we're doing well. Right? 
when we don't want a transactional God where that comes into play. And then again, the prophet, in Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah says, what does God desire in his fast? Is this not the fast that I choose? Loose the bonds of wickedness. Undo the straps of the yoke. Let the oppressed go free. Break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your home? And when you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard and you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. God calls the fast to identify with the poor, to grieve over injustice that is being participated in and even perpetuated by God's own people. Uh, and this is all comes from Isaiah. I was challenged one time by a friend who would suggest that the judgment that Isaiah is bringing on behalf of God is there because of the sexual immorality of God's people. I got a hard time reading Isaiah 58 and Isaiah 1 and pretty much all of it and think this was, this was someone who got nervous about the idea of justice and God's call to justice. God's judgment was being poured out for both communal and personal injustice and unrighteousness. Their personal morality, who they were giving themselves to, what gods they were worshiping, and then the treatment of, of others, of the poor, of the afflicted. The biblical prescription for a fast was always an awareness of a sacred moment to grieve as God grieves over sin, over death, over judgment, over injustice and violence and war. And God's people were called to respond with a holy grief. Let's keep going. The rest of verse 16. Jesus says this, So when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. And truly I say to you, they've received their reward. So apparently there were some among the religiously pious who had turned the practice of entering into God's grief and mourning over sin and violence and injustice into self-beneficial, self-promotional performance. I'm, I'm not like, I'm not judging them, I'm judging me. Are we, like the depth of sinfulness in, in humankind is, is just pretty amazing. How does this translate into our own day? I, I would be willing to bet most of us aren't going to rub dirt on our faces. Right? Guys, look at me. Look how dirty I am. But we live in a day where it's really, really, really hard not to do things simply because they are self-beneficial and transactional. Our world runs on transactions. Our economy runs on transactions. You do for me, and I'll do for you. 
This is what makes me better than you, or at least better than those people. I eat these things, and I don't eat these things. I take these stances, and I don't take these stances. We, have, we live in a world of virtue, virtue signaling. The two temptations that we face with fasting in particular, either in complete and total neglect, where we don't ever even think about it, or in misusing the practice to be more about ourselves. May Christ have mercy, and the good news is that he does. Jesus' comment here is for those who want to be seen and noticed for their religious devotion. And he says that your compensation is exactly what you want. To be seen and noticed by others. Jesus, again, is going to show the absolute contrast of a relationship with God the Father versus a religious performance. Or as John Calvin would say, playing to the gallery. Instead of entering into the Father's grief, the hypocrite stands looking for admiration and adoration. And I'll say this, when we practice this is, this is, we're going to move next week. We're going to move next week into money. Keep the cake, right? Uh, when we practice giving, these spiritual practices that we've been seeing in, in chapter 6, giving, praying, and fasting, any of the other spiritual practices that God has given to us, to understand we, we've got to be aware these are not for show, they're not for acclaim, nor do these put God in our debt. as if he is obligated to give us more when we do the right thing. Jesus doesn't name any fasting heroes of the faith, though there are. He does presume that the people of God are, in fact, fasting. So then you might ask, well then, okay, how are they supposed to fast? What are these practices for? I'm glad you asked. Verse 17. But when you fast, anoint your head with oil, wash your face, that your fasting may not, may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So instead of fasting for self-glory or self-benefit, Jesus, again, he kind of over-instructs us here. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. Go above and beyond. Make sure you don't look like you're fasting. Take a shower. Put your cologne on. Put your perfume on. Give every appearance that you are going about your normal day. Now, please know that this is intentionally overdone. Jesus is not talking about necessarily making the outside look good. Just as in prayer, Jesus doesn't actually want you to go and build a closet in the middle of your house so that you have a place to, play, uh, to pray. What he is saying here is that the practices that are designed to be done with and before God see and receive their fullness when they are done with and before God. The presence of God is the reward. It is intrinsic in the practice when it's done before him. Fasting in particular is a response to a sacred and grievous moment by entering into the grief of God himself. Sometimes 
God responds with the miraculous. Because he's good. Not because we show him how devoted we are. So I want to I want to give some practical and general thoughts closing here on fasting. Some clarifications uh, I want to bring about one more motive that we're given in the New Testament for fasting, uh, and then I'm going to I'm going to close basically with an opportunity to practice. Um, all right, so here are a few things. Biblical fasting is not eating food for a certain period of time. Be a day, 24-hour period, sun up to sundown. The other longer, longer fasts uh, are also a part of it, whatever it might be. But it's we, we, it is to not eat food. Now, not being on your phone, not eating chocolate or drinking alcohol, getting off social media. This is abstaining. But it's not fasting. Now, in the past, I think I'd been like, tomato, potato, right? Um, actually, neither of those. Uh, but the distinctions that I read about in studying this week were helpful, uh, and I appreciated it. And that's why I'm mentioning it. It may just seem like semantics. That when we remove an item from our life, or an item or two from our lives, this might be a helpful tool for spiritual formation. This might be getting rid of a helpful distraction. This might, I'm not saying that's not good, um, but to fast when commanded by God, instructed in his word, again, it's not about personal growth, even though you could very possibly grow in your maturity and your dependence and your understanding of the grief of God. But it's about grief. It's about responding by entering into the grief of God and suffering with God and for the sake of others. And I've probably presented fasting in the past more toward personal growth. Um, and again, I don't want to suggest that personal growth doesn't happen and that it's okay. But I think sometimes that might is probably based more on tradition than on actually what is made known in Scripture. And it may seem like a fine line, but it just jumped out at me this week. And, and I feel like it, it's, it's pretty important, and especially in light of where we are in time and in history. The reason that fasting from food is aligned with grief is that it calls our whole body into grieving with God, that we are not separate. We're not mind, body. We are mind, body, and spirit. Those are not separated. And so we're calling our whole body and our whole being to respond to these moments of suffering. Now, after saying all this, I do believe, just because it's not commanded, um, doesn't mean it's not... It's not good. And I believe that there's still a place for rhythm of fasting regularly, if you so choose. But here again, being very aware of our motives, that our motives, even the anticipation of this, is designed to enter into the suffering uh, of the world around us. There are spiritual, physical, mental, emotional benefits of fasting, but that's not the call. And I'm not trying to be tricky with this, um, but I do think it's helpful to be aware. The motive is not for personal growth or formation. It is to enter into the grief of God, of what we're given. Um, 
in studying for the practices of the Christian life. The, the, this can be difficult. Like the last three weeks, we've talked about giving, we've talked about praying, four, four weeks, and we've talked about fasting. Uh, all of these spiritual practices that we're given, and uh, it can be daunting. It can feel like a to-do list. Um, it does invoke doing, practicing. But it can easily fall into a few unhelpful categories. The shoulds. Right? Anybody? I should, I should do this more. I should be better at this. I, I should. Uh, um, guilt can be crushing. And sometimes we can practice these things just so we don't feel as guilty. And then Jesus goes, uh, you know, I want you to tell others about my grace. And we're like, all right, I want to tell others about your grace so I don't feel as guilty. And then, then they can come in and not feel as guilty with it. Or we may see some of these practices as something to accomplish. A workout routine that becomes more about self-improvement more about something to achieve. When our enemy teams up with our shame and our insecurity and our pride, our disordered desires, he's good, man. He can work us over. And in these moments, when we become self-aware and we realize, I may not be doing this for the, for the right motives, Hopefully and prayerfully in those moments that we, that we can remember that we come before God in the poverty of spirit, not in our accomplishments, not in our shoulds, not in assuaging our guilt, but we actually come before God that we offer nothing, and it is all his grace and mercy. There's one more aspect and motive to fasting that actually takes place in the New Testament. Matthew 9 John the Baptist's disciples come up to Jesus' disciples, and they're like, hey, how come uh, we're fasting? Pharisees are fasting. Your guys are not fasting. What's going on with that? Again, this is indicative of a regular practice <laughs> that is not, I'm going to keep it's not commanded anywhere, but like everybody was doing it. Um, and so they come up and they ask, how come all the rest of us are fasting, but your disciples are not fasting? And Jesus responds and he says, how can the wedding guests grieve? Here again, fasting is aligned with grief. How can the wedding guests grieve when the bridegroom is with them? The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away. And then my disciples will fast. Jesus assures them Hey, there's going to come a day when my guys will start practicing fasting again, but not today. But they will, <laughs> but not today. When we join in God's grief over the present world, there is a mourning and grieving and fasting that deeply longs for the bridegroom's return. It longs for the day when all will be right justice will roll like a never-ending scroll, when the lion will lay down with the lamb, when the desert will rejoice and bloom, when the ransomed of the Lord will return and enter Zion with singing and never-ending joy will be upon their heads. There's a mourning and grieving as we wait and long for that day 
with new wine in her new wineskin. And we feast on the goodness of the Lord and drink deeply of the water of living of life. We grieve now, but we grieve with hope. And, and, and so here's the thing. In Christ, we have the hope of the resurrection, but sometimes what we do with that, with the total neglect of fasting, is we say, hey, don't worry about anything. We, you know, we have the hope of the resurrection. And I think Jesus would actually commend us otherwise. I think followers of Jesus ought to grieve even deeper. Because we can look around and go, this is not the way the world was meant to be. Sickness, death, war, violence, injustice. This was not the way the world was supposed to be. And we know how the world was designed to be in the fullness uh, of, of in the presence of God. And it's not that way. And so we grieve even deeper. And yet, we also grieve with hope. That the historical evidence of the resurrection, Jesus physically rising from the grave and telling us this is not the way it will always be. There will come a day. And so when we fast, we enter into the grief of the world as it is, but we grieve with hope that this is not the end. Let me finish just by giving you uh, an opportunity this week if you'd like to join in. Um, Friday night I had the, it's funny, Jeremy talked about if you don't go to church very often and you come in and you're like, oh, this is weird. Everybody else is used to it and you, and you kind of sit there, it's weird. Friday night I had an opportunity to sit with uh, another one of my rabbi friends, Jim Bennett, his uh, Shabbat service. Um, and, and it's weird because we're doing things in Hebrew. And I don't even know what we're saying. Um, and there's, there's no notes in the songbook at all. Um, but uh, running into another friend of mine uh, who let me know that the, uh, the Latin Catholic Patriarch of Jerusalem has called for a day of prayer and fasting for peace and reconciliation in Israel. Now, we are not Catholic. Uh, but this is an opportunity to join with millions around the world to enter into God's grief over the absolute violence and complete disregard for human life that is happening right now in Israel and seems to only be heading down a path that will get more deadly and bloodier. I'm going to say this again. There are peace-loving Palestinians. There are peace-loving Israelis. The history here is long and incredibly Incredibly complicated, yes, and absolutely. But I also want to say unequivocally that what Hamas has done and is doing with children and with civilians is wicked and it is evil. It is evil. That's not complicated. This Thursday, the 19th, again, Patriarch of Jerusalem has called for a day of fasting this Thursday, the 19th. An opportunity, if you want to join with millions around the world, uh, if you want to pray and fast and grieve with God over the violence of our world, over the things that are taking place, asking and begging, and who knows, 
Maybe God will relent. Maybe peace will stand. Maybe God will bring about a miraculous ceasefire. If you wanted to do something sun up to sundown, if you wanted to do 24 hours, if you wanted to skip a meal, if you wanted to sit there and eat what you wanted, just a day focused on prayer, that's going to be on Thursday the 19th. With that, let me pray for us. God, we have not done anything to earn or deserve your goodness and your grace. Um, this world is, is really complicated, and, and as Jeremy mentioned earlier, there's, there are global things that are taking place, and there are personal things that are taking place. And really, a gift that you have given us is to be able to enter into grief with our whole being. do that, we get to experience your goodness and your hope that we are not alone, that you're not a God that is aloof, you're not a God that kind of just sits up there and doesn't care much about the affairs of men, but that you, you're a God that grieves deeply. And then we also get to experience in that moment and be reminded that though we grieve presently, we we grieve with the hope of the resurrection, Christ as, as the first fruits. One day, there, there is new life to come. Lord, I pray that uh, I pray that you'd be gentle with us. You are, you're gracious, and you know probably even more than we do how crippled we are. pray that you would really make us aware when we're trying to perform, when we feel like we're, we're just doing this because we're supposed to, and you would just remind us of your goodness and grace, that these are gifts from you, to know you, to grow our trust with you, to be met by you in the secret places. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.